This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. The death penalty is applied equally across the board, said no one ever. It is a well-known fact that capital punishment is handed out to one specific group of people more than any other. The reason for this is, well, to me it's unclear. I have my suspicions, some would call it privilege. Some say that it's because those who are more often condemned commit more atrocities than those who are spared. That's just not the case. Today, we're gonna do things a little different. I'm gonna present you two cases at a time with similar storylines, similar crimes, and we're gonna compare the two and see how different the endings are. Privilege is a hell of a thing. People in 2023 like to say that a lot of us are born with it. There are many political movements that shame certain people for characteristics they're born with and can't do anything about. In a perfect world, our justice system would treat all of us equally. We'd be given compassion when it was warranted and a needle in the arm if it was deserved. We wouldn't be spared or executed based on what we look like. But that isn't the case. And today, I'm gonna dive deep into some examples of that. Buckle the fuck up, because today, we're looking at the death penalty double standard. No one wants to go to the hospital. It's just one of those things that happens sometimes. They're supposed to be safe places where we can go when we're in need of medical attention. Babies are born within these walls, and old people slip away into the unknown just rooms away. Trauma patients get treated in the ER, routine surgeries happen in operating rooms. Hospitals freak me the fuck out, to be honest with you. I've been to a handful of them around the Salt Lake Valley for a number of reasons. For a time, I believed that all medical professionals actually wanted to help people instead of just get fat paychecks from insurance companies. But I don't believe that anymore. The first two cases I have for you are not the reason why I don't trust modern medicine anymore, but they definitely add to my disdain for the medical industry. William Davis was born in Longview, Texas in early February of 1984. There's not much available on his early life, but he went on to become a nurse at Christus Trinity Mother Francis Hospital in Tyler, Texas. Jesus Christ, what a name. Davis wanted to help people. That's what medical professionals do. In my experience, it's a 50-50 shot whether you're going to get a good nurse or a really shitty one. I had both when my son was born. Took that cute little dude nearly 24 hours to make his entrance into the world. And unfortunately for me, the good nurse had been there in the morning when I was induced and the terrible one helped deliver him. But that's a story for another day. One detail I'd like to include before I move on is that I asked this nurse, the one that delivered my son, if there was anything that they could give me for the pain aside from an epidural. And she told me fentanyl. I said, fuck that. But guess what they put in an epidural? It ain't Tylenol. I was injected with drugs I didn't want during my most recent hospital stay. But that's nothing compared to what patients at the hospital Davis worked at had to deal with. From 2017 to 2018, several patients at Mother Francis Hospital experienced weird complications after undergoing heart surgeries. While recovering, they suffered stroke-like symptoms. Five of these people survived, but many others weren't so lucky. Among those who perished in the hospital were John Lafferty, Christopher Greenaway, and Ronald Clark. A fourth victim, Joseph Kalina, initially survived, but passed away from the injuries he sustained two years later. Three other men, James Sanders, Perry Frank, and James Blanks, were also suspected to have been killed the same way. People die in hospitals. That's just a fact of life. My stepdad died in a hospital. But the administration at this particular hospital noticed a weird pattern and did some digging. They discovered surveillance footage of a male nurse going into cardiac patients' rooms shortly before they began experiencing stroke symptoms. 
A CT scan performed on Joseph Kalina showed that he had air in the arterial system of his brain. This caused him brain damage that he'd later die from. The last person to enter Mr. Kalina's room was William Davis. Turns out, this sick motherfucker wanted more overtime hours at work, so he'd sneak into patients' rooms and inject air into their IV lines. James Sanders was the only victim who had died from something other than an air injection. His death had been caused by an intentional insulin injection. Sword and Scale covered the case of Charles Cullen, who was another angel of death nurse. The difference between that case and the one we're talking about today is that Mother Francis Hospital didn't shuffle Davis around to different hospitals and try to cover up his murderous actions. They saw what was going on and put a stop to it immediately. Davis pled not guilty and tried to claim that these were accidental deaths, though it was pretty obvious they weren't. He was found guilty on all counts. During the sentencing phase, the prosecution played a recorded phone call Davis had placed to his wife from jail. In this call, he can be heard telling her that he wanted to lengthen the amount of time patients in the ICU had to spend there so he could get more overtime. Years before William Davis was even out of high school, another Texas nurse would show the world just how depraved humans can be. Vicki Carson was born in Montague County, Texas in early February of 1966. So I guess the lesson here is ask your nurse when they were born. If the answer is sometime within the first two weeks of February, you get the fuck out of that hospital. I'm kidding, obviously. Much like Davis, not much is known about the early life of Vicki Carson. She was a licensed vocational nurse and worked in a handful of hospitals across North Texas. At some point, she got married, and her last name became Jackson. Late in the year 2000, she found a job at Nakona General Hospital, which is known for treating mostly elderly patients with less serious conditions. Shortly after Jackson began working at Nakona General Hospital, they started seeing a surge in patient deaths. All of these patients were elderly between the ages of 62 and 100. They'd all been healthy before their deaths, and it seemed odd that they'd passed away. It was initially thought that maybe old age had been a factor, but the hospital administration noticed that vials of a muscle relaxer called Mivacron had been disappearing. It wasn't considered a lethal substance, and the missing vials were originally thought to just be inventory mismanagement. The hospital administrator ordered that the cabinets containing Mivacron be locked, and only accessible to the supervisors. After this, the police were called. An investigation began into more than 20 deaths. Bodies were exhumed in both Texas and Oklahoma to test for poisoning. While this was going on, it was revealed that a civil lawsuit had been filed on behalf of a 61-year-old polio patient named Donnelly Reed. He claimed that a nurse named Vicki Jackson had injected a drug into his IV tube. He was somehow able to alert another nurse who came to help him and ultimately saved his life. He died two months later from pneumonia. Another lawsuit was filed a week later by the children of an 87-year-old man named Boyd Burnett. They alleged that Jackson had injected him with some kind of unprescribed drug that ended up killing him on Christmas Eve in the year 2000. Jackson was fired from the hospital and went on to work at a grocery store. This is where she was arrested on July 16, 2002. She'd been charged with four counts of capital murder. The trial was set to begin in October of 2004. In January of that year, six more murder charges were added and her bond went from two million to six million. Why they set bond for her at all is beyond me. Jackson's first trial ended in a mistrial because the prosecutor had made comments that prejudiced the jury. He had said that vials of Mivacron had been found in Jackson's home, and also suggested that losing custody of her kids and her dissolving marriage might have been reasons she started killing her patients. I don't see how that's prejudicial. That just seems like facts to me. But I don't speak legalese, so what the fuck do I know? An FBI agent testified during the second trial and said that after interviewing Jackson several times, he determined that she'd killed her patients for being too demanding. They're literally in the 
fucking hospital depending on you for everything they need. That is your job, you lazy bitch. If you don't want to take care of people, go work at a grocery store. In the end, Jackson pled no contest to all 10 capital murder charges against her. Texas is a death penalty state, in case you somehow weren't aware of that, so, you know. William George Davis was sentenced to death by a Smith County jury. As of the time of writing, he remains on death row in Texas trying to appeal his sentence. I'm going to try to keep an eye on this one and update you if anything changes. This is a very recent case, so nothing is set in stone yet, and he's been in court trying to appeal. Vicki Don Jackson was sentenced to life in prison. She remains locked up in Gatesville, Texas. Her earliest parole date is in 2042. Yep, she got life with parole. More victims than Davis. More effort needed to actually kill her patients. Less of a legitimate reason for doing it. And no, I'm not saying Davis wanting money was a legitimate reason to murder, but it makes a hell of a lot more sense than killing people who needed help. Yet she walks away with her life and has the chance at freedom again. Do y'all remember all the way back in Arkansas when I talked about Ronald Gene Simmons? That crazy motherfucker with the two trailers smashed together into a single house and a cesspit in the backyard they all used as a toilet? Well, it turns out that middle-aged men who snap and kill their families are more common than I thought. Marcus Wesson was born in August of 1946 in Kansas. He grew up in a typical religious household and was raised as a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. All I know about this particular religion is that it's some sect of Christianity. If you've been here before, you'll know that I am not religiously educated. There are Mormons and there are non-Mormons. That's about all my Utah-raised brain can understand when it comes to religion. I don't subscribe to any of it. Wesson claimed that his mother was deeply religious and described her as a fanatic. His father was an abusive alcoholic and eventually abandoned the family, like most alcoholics do. We've got all the ingredients here for some fucking murder. God damn. Wesson dropped out of high school and served in the army as an ambulance driver from 1966 to 1968. You know, when I think of military jobs, ambulance driver doesn't come up, but it's probably a pretty fucking important one. I'm not a psychologist, and I can't tell you exactly what the fuck happened to Marcus Wesson that screwed him up so badly, but let me just say, this man was a sick puppy. I think the Bible thumping was part of it. After getting out of the army, Wesson shacked up with an older woman named Rosemary Solorio and her eight kids in San Jose, California. Rosemary gave birth to Wesson's first child, a son, in 1971 wasn't long after this that Wesson started sexually abusing Rosemary's eight-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. And then things got fucking weird about six years later. Wesson married Elizabeth when she was 14 and he was 34. I'm really not sure how they went about making that legal, but it was apparently a thing. Just four months after the wedding, she gave birth to her first child. Fathered, of course by the man who had previously dated her mother. Altogether, they'd have 10 kids, including a baby who perished. Years passed and Elizabeth's younger sister decided to leave her seven kids with the Wessons. She claimed that she was unable to care for them due to her addiction. Why she thought it was a good idea to leave them with a pedophile who wouldn't keep a job is a mystery to me. Marcus Wesson never had a steady job and was consistently on welfare and took money that his adult children earned at their jobs. This guy really is the black Ronald Gene Simmons, holy shit. Wesson caught charges for perjury and welfare fraud in 1989. This family, this huge, poverty-stricken, probably mentally fucked beyond belief family, never had a stable home. They were constantly moving around and living in shacks, unoccupied houses, and even boats. 
least Wesson was a loving father, right? No, of course not. He was abusive to his wife and kids. Elizabeth wasn't permitted to help raise her own children, who were, as you probably guessed, homeschooled. Wesson taught them his own flavor of religion from a handwritten Bible that centered around Jesus being a vampire. I know it sounds like I'm making shit up, but I'm not. The kids were taught that Wesson was God, and they had to refer to him as Master or Lord. Armageddon was coming, according to Wesson, and he made that clear to his kids. He also made sure all of his daughters knew that they were destined to become his future wives. This, dear last meal listener, is why we don't mix violence and religion. This kind of shit happens. None of his daughters were allowed to even speak to their brothers or their mother. All of the kids were physically abused, but Wesson took to raping three of his nieces and two of his daughters, starting when the girls were eight. All of them became pregnant. How have I not heard of this guy until now? Jesus Christ. The plan was to move the family to Washington State to be near Wesson's parents, but on March 12, 2004, Several family members showed up to the property to demand that the children be released. Police were called and told to respond to a child custody issue. When they arrived, Wesson told them to wait at the front door and disappeared back into the house. When he returned, he was covered in blood. No gunshots had been heard by the police, but other witnesses say they were audible. After Wesson was taken into custody, the police found nine bodies inside the house. Two of Wesson's daughters and seven of their kids were found in a bedroom filled with antique coffins. Every one of the victims had been shot in the eye. At trial, the defense tried to blame the murders on Wesson's oldest daughter, Sabrina, who had also perished in the house. They claimed it was a murder-suicide. The gun used in the shooting was found near her body, and her DNA was on it. But she could have grabbed it while trying to get it away from her father. The only person who knew for sure what happened that day was Marcus Wesson. If this isn't your first time here, you'll know I prefer to find lesser-known cases to include in my episodes. But to be completely honest with you, there aren't a lot of women with cases of the same magnitude as Marcus Wesson. Sure, women are constantly murdering their kids, but most of them don't have as many kids and don't go about doing things so methodically. They usually just snap and it's a mess. There is one, however, who almost fits the mold. She's got that religious obsession, a different but still severe brand of mental illness, and a whole busload of kids who unfortunately met their ends by her hands. And yeah, that was a bit of a pun. We need all the laughs we can get before I dive into this one. Andrea Kennedy was born in Houston, Texas to a German immigrant mother and a second-generation Irishman father. She was the youngest of five kids and raised in a Catholic house. Andrea was a bright student, graduating as the valedictorian of Milby High School in 1982. On top of this, she was an officer in the National Honor Society and captain of the swim team. After high school, she completed a nursing program at the University of Houston and went on to graduate from the University of Texas School of Nursing. She had a bright future, that's for sure. Andrea worked as a nurse at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center from 1986 to 1994. It seems to me that all she really wanted was to help people. Andrea would meet a man named Rusty Yates in the summer of 1989. They moved in together soon after this and were married on April 17, 1993. The couple made the decision to have as many babies as nature allowed. After their wedding, they bought a four-bedroom house in Friendswood, Texas and got to work growing their family. Their first son, Noah, was born in February of 1994. Not long after this, Rusty got a job down in Florida and the family relocated. The small trailer in Seminole was definitely a downgrade from their house, but it served its purpose, I guess. The couple welcomed a second little boy named John in December of 1995, and a third named Paul in September of 1997. They really like their biblical names, don't they? 
Baby Luke was born in February of 1999, and this is where the postpartum depression really began to take hold. Andrea, probably due to her strong religious beliefs, decided that it would be best to homeschool her kids. I don't disagree with homeschooling at all. While I know for a fact I don't have the patience for it, I admire those who put a strong effort into teaching their own kids. Having that many kids, though, and with such a fragile state of mind, they would have been better off getting education from someone else. And this is back before schools were pushing transgender bathroom bullshit and critical race theory. Her boys would have been fine. On June 16, 1999, Rusty got a call from Andrea while she was at work. She begged him to come home. When he arrived, he found her shaking uncontrollably and chewing on her fingers. She was clearly overwhelmed, but nothing was done to get her checked out. She attempted suicide by swallowing a handful of pills. While in the hospital for this, she was diagnosed with a major depressive disorder. Andrea didn't want help and refused to discuss her problems. So her doctors did what most doctors do. They threw some pills at her and let her go home. Andrea didn't take her pills. Are you surprised? I speak from experience when I say that antidepressants are fucking awful, but some people actually need them. I was forced to take them as a child because my mother thought I needed them. Pretty sure she was just projecting her mental illness onto me, but I don't really want to get into that right now because this ain't about her. In addition to not taking her meds, Andrea stopped feeding her children and claimed that they were eating too much. She also began cutting herself. How no one stepped in and had her involuntarily committed at this point just baffles me. On July 20th, just a month after her first suicide attempt, Andrea put a knife to her neck and begged Rusty to just let her die. This resulted in yet another trip to the hospital and a 10-day long catatonic state. They gave her Haldol this time and warned her that having more kids would likely result in more mental distress. She was sent on her way. By this point, the family was living in a cramped bus they'd purchased from a traveling minister who Andrea was obsessed with. The man was very extreme in his views and often preached that the role of women is derived from the sin of Eve and that bad mothers who are going to hell create bad children who will go to hell. Mental illness and religion don't mix. This isn't quite a case of if you talk to God, you're praying, but if God talks to you, you're schizophrenic, but... Andrea was a lost woman who hung on this minister's every word. Andrea's family tried their best to get Rusty to buy a house instead of keeping his wife in the confined space of the bus. The family later moved to a nicer house in a quiet neighborhood. This seemed to do the trick. Andrea went back to doing things like cooking, swimming, and even a bit of socializing. Her relationship with her kids improved significantly too. In March of 2000, the couple ignored what the doctors had said and began trying for another baby. Little Mary was born on November 30th, 2000. They finally got a girl. I can imagine how elated Andrea must have been. I had two girls before my son was born and holy shit was I over the moon when I popped a balloon full of blue paint instead of pink. Unfortunately for the Yates family, the new baby brought more psychosis for Andrea. She was doing okay at first, not great, but surviving, until her dad passed away on March 12, 2001. Almost immediately, she went back to obsessively reading the Bible, cutting herself, and refusing to feed her baby. Andrea was taken to a different hospital and once again treated with Haldol. This new psychiatrist claimed that Andrea didn't seem psychotic and decided to take her off the medication. What the fuck? She was released once again and returned in May in a similar state. Her psychiatrist released her again after 10 days and told her to think positive thoughts. Because that definitely works. Rusty left for work on June 20th, 2001. His mother was supposed to come help Andrea care for the kids, but she'd never get that chance. After filling her bathtub with water, Andrea systematically drowned her three youngest boys and placed them on the bed with blankets on top of them. Baby Mary was left floating in the tub. When the oldest child, seven-year-old Noah, asked what was wrong with Mary, 
He must have known something was wrong with his mom. He turned and ran away from her, but Andrea caught up with him and drowned him in the tub where his sister remained. This little boy, holy shit, he fought, came up for error twice before giving in. Andrea left him in the tub as she put Mary in the bed with the other boys. Marcus DeLon Wesson was found guilty of nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of forcible rape and sexual molestation. He was sentenced to death on June 27, 2005. As of the time of writing, he's still sitting on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California. He's 77 years old, and old age is going to take him before the state even thinks about it. Andrea Pia Yates was found guilty of capital murder in March of 2002. She was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. Her sentence was reversed in 2005 and she was found not guilty by reason of insanity on July 26, 2006. She's currently living in a high security mental health facility and is allowed to attend church services. Andrea Yates was clearly very mentally disturbed when she committed those murders. I'm not going to argue with that at all. During her confession, she said that she wasn't a good mother and that the children weren't developing properly, so she needed to be punished. Everyone could have seen that tragedy coming a mile away. Marcus Wesson was mentally disturbed too, just in a different way. That last one was just fucking sad. So I'm going to hit you with one that'll cause a little less heartache. Any of you out there who are Sword and Scale fans will probably remember when Mike did an episode about road rage. It's a lot more common than you'd think. People often like to say that those who keep guns in their car are more likely to have road rage, but I speak from experience when I say that isn't the case. If anything, Having that bitch in the car helps keep my rage to a minimum. I gotta be on my best behavior. Utah drivers are fucking terrible, in case you've never been here. Some people do snap, though. It's tragic, but you have to ask yourself. Was the road rage warranted? Were they stuck behind an Arizona driver going 15 under the speed limit in the left lane? There I go again with the dark jokes. Sorry, I can't help it. On the night of August 25, 1998, in a Texas town called Plano, Douglas Feldman was out riding his motorcycle. My grandpa was a biker, and it's been drilled into my head since I was a kid that it's important to watch for bikes on the road because they're harder to see. The other end of the spectrum here is those fucking bullet bike riders who do 110 and weave in and out of traffic. I hate to say it, but they kind of get what's coming to them. I'm not sure what Feldman was riding, but due to the year, I'm gonna assume it wasn't a bullet bike. While on the road, Feldman was passed by a semi that quickly cut in front of him. Semis and motorcycles don't mix, they're like oil and water. I've nearly been taken out by careless truck drivers, but I was more scared than angry. Feldman, however, had a very different reaction. He pulled out his 9mm pistol and shot into the trailer that the truck was pulling. I have to wonder if the driver even noticed. After this, witnesses saw Feldman reload his gun while still moving. He then pulled alongside the cab and fired several more shots at 36-year-old Robert Everett. A grand total of 12 shots went into that truck. Feldman pulled into a nearby parking lot and then returned to Robert's truck to make sure he was dead. After this, he headed home. About 45 minutes later, Feldman passed a gas station in Dallas and saw a tanker truck refilling their gas supply. He was still seeing red. He pulled into the gas station and fired four shots in the direction of the truck. Two of those hit the 62-year-old driver, Nicholas Velasquez, in the back. This man was just doing his job, probably thinking about what he was going to have for dinner that night and he was murdered randomly in cold blood. You'd think the carnage would be over by now, but Douglas Feldman still hadn't cooled off. 
On September 5th, he drove past a fast food restaurant in Dallas and saw a man standing next to a truck using a payphone. The semi must have triggered something because Feldman shot Antonio Vega three times before leaving the scene. Thankfully, Antonio survived and a witness was able to get Feldman's license plate number. When he was arrested, he was found with two guns and a metric fuck ton of ammunition. Ballistics tests were done, and it was determined that all three shootings had been committed with the same 9mm pistol. In May of 2019, a 21-year-old woman witnessed a hit-and-run in Clayton County, Georgia. A pickup truck had run a red light and smashed into a semi. Both vehicles were damaged, but everyone involved was okay. As they were waiting for police to arrive, two witnesses stopped to help. One of these witnesses was a Georgia Department of Corrections officer, and the other was a random woman who just wanted to help. Officer Robinson examined the pickup truck driver to make sure he wasn't injured and noticed that he appeared to be disoriented. His eyes were a reddish-orange color, and the officer thought the man was in diabetic shock. The group was waiting on the side of the road for about 20 minutes before the man driving the pickup got back in his vehicle and left the scene. The woman decided to follow the man, later identified as 62-year-old Kenneth Herring, and called 911 to report what she'd seen. According to court documents, 21-year-old Hannah Payne was concerned that the man would cause another accident, so she continued to follow him until police could intervene. When they got to the intersection of Forest Parkway and Riverdale Road, Payne cut him off and got out of her car with a 9mm handgun. A video taken by a bystander shows Payne hitting Kenneth with her left hand while she holds the gun in her right. It also shows the gun going inside the truck, but it's unclear who pulled the trigger. I have to assume the person holding the gun pulled the trigger, but what the fuck do I know? Kenneth Herring was shot in the abdomen. Toxicology reports were done that showed Kenneth had nothing in his system. His wife told an interviewer that she believed her husband was suffering from a diabetic episode and was doing what he could to get to a hospital. I can speak from experience on this issue. I dated a guy with type 1 diabetes. That shit can get really out of control, and according to my ex, you can use your blood sugar to pass drug tests. Just spike that shit to dangerous levels and somehow you don't piss dirty. That's not medical advice, so don't sue me if you decide to be stupid. Kenneth Herring was shot in the gut while more than likely trying to get medical attention. Payne claimed that he revved his engine and tried to run her over, but everything I'm finding on this looks like she shot him for no fucking reason. Douglas Allen Feldman was executed by lethal injection on July 31st, 2013. Was his road rage justified? Hell no. After reading his last words, though, I am inclined to believe that he had some kind of mental health crisis going on. He was not okay. Texas no longer offers last meal requests, thanks to a man named Lawrence Russell Brewer, so Feldman got whatever was on the menu that day. His very chilling, very fucked up last words were, I hereby declare Robert Stephen Everett and Nicholas Velasquez guilty of crimes against me, Douglas Allen Feldman. Either by fact or by proxy, I find them both guilty. I hereby sentence both of them to death, which I carried out in August of 1998. As of that time, the state of Texas has been holding me illegally in confinement and by force for 15 years. I hereby protest my pending execution and demand immediate relief. Hannah Payne is still waiting to find out her fate. She pled not guilty and was released on $220,000 bond. The most recent update I can find is from November of 2022. Her trial was delayed because her attorney had a stroke, or so he claims. The judge actually held the attorney in contempt of court and claimed she doesn't believe the stroke story. So I'm not entirely sure what the fuck is going on here. I do know that Georgia is a death penalty state. Payne is facing two counts of felony murder, one count of malice murder, one count of false imprisonment, and three counts of possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. I am 100% sure 
that the most she'll get is life in prison, and that's if she doesn't cry in court and claim self-defense. Juries are fucking dumb sometimes. Mental illness is one of those topics that no one agrees on when it comes to the death penalty. Opponents say that the mentally ill can't help themselves, but those on my side of the fence tend to think that, depending on the brutality of the crimes committed, execution is the only way to deal with it. After all, we no longer have asylums, and long-term psychiatric facilities often seem to end in escape or release. A shining example of this is Vince Lee a Canadian man who decapitated Tim McLean on a Greyhound bus and ate parts of his body. They found him criminally insane and threw him into a mental health facility. He spent less than seven years getting treatment before he was released back into the wild. Now we have to wonder if he'll stay on his meds or if he'll snap again and destroy another family's life. Good job, Canada. This is one of many cases that you completely fucked up. Tim's mother now has to live with the pain of her son's killer walking the streets of Manitoba. But he was schizophrenic, so he got help instead of punishment. While looking into some topics for this episode, I came across a case that took place in Salt Lake City in the late 90s. I was just a kid, way too young to understand true crime. But I still find it kind of strange that I had never heard of this one before. According to a handful of newspaper articles, Salt Lake had a major problem with the mentally ill back in the 90s. I lived downtown for a brief while, and I can tell you from experience that the Rio Grande District near Gateway Mall was always overrun with the homeless. There's a shelter over there by the train station, and it's always been a pretty unsavory part of town. The city has made half-assed efforts to clean it up in recent years, all they really managed to do was shuffle the homeless around and tear down the tents. Two Democrat mayors in a row. One was elected because she was gay, and Salt Lake liberals love identity politics. The one they have now, I don't know much about, but I do know that she's cut from a similar cloth. Sergei Bavarin was a Russian immigrant living in St. Mark's Tower off of 600 South and 300 East literally less than a block away from the apartment complex I lived in, the ghetto one that I've mentioned before. He was a 70-year-old man who lived with his wife. They had a handful of kids as well. According to his family, Sergei was schizophrenic. He was diagnosed while living in New York in the late 80s, but authorities in Utah would later say that all he had was a mild case of depression. I know a bit about mental issues. I've struggled with anxiety pretty much my entire life. I've had depression as well. My best friend has some kind of schizoid personality thing. I'm not sure exactly what his diagnosis is, but it's something. Neither me nor my friend have ever snapped and killed anyone. So I don't know what the Utah authorities were smoking, but I have to assume it was meth. We have a lot of meth in this desert wasteland. According to Sergei's wife, Zoya Mikhailovna Barbarin, the man had stopped taking his medication a few weeks before he lost his mind. According to her, he stopped taking it because he thought it was poison. Sergei began accusing everyone in his life of being spies. Have to wonder, did the Ruskies have their own MKUltra going on? Or was this simply an old Russian man reliving his youth? Around that time, the U.S. decided to save the world by attacking Kosovo. Sergei's son later said that his father started having flashbacks to a particularly rough time he had during World War II. The elderly man, like many other old people, enjoyed walking around the city and took a walk almost every day. April 15, 1999 was no different. Sergei wasn't very well liked. He was very rude and had no manners at all. Maybe this is a controversial opinion, but uh, old people have kind of earned it. They put up with society's shit for enough decades that they earned the right to complain. When Sergei entered the library, he diverted from his routine a little bit. Rather than greet the first person he saw with a snarky comment, he met them with gunfire. <laughs> 
the receptionist at the front desk was hit a little bit before 10.30 a.m. From the lobby, Sergei headed to the orientation room, shooting randomly as he went. The man casually strolled around the library for a while. He seemed content, even stopping to reload his gun. Police would arrive at 10.32 a.m., but by this point, 55-year-old Patricia Franks and a 62-year-old security guard named Donald Thomas had already perished. Many others were injured, but only four of them required an overnight stay in the hospital. Sergei's random reign of terror was over almost as quickly as it began. Some people might argue that there are more mentally ill people now than ever. I don't doubt that for a second. Social media has turned us all into narcissistic assholes. The government locked us up in our homes for over a year in some places because of a pandemic. And of course now, those of us living in the US have to deal with a tanking economy. Let me be the first to say that the dumb memes on the internet are true. I worked hard getting a good job and spent about two years being considered middle class. Then somehow, the Democrats managed to get an old man with dementia into the presidential office, and I'm now living paycheck to paycheck and paying overdraft fees constantly because I'm fucking broke. It's not poor money management either. It's gas being $4 a gallon on a good day, groceries costing an arm and a leg, and energy prices skyrocketing that kills me. If you've been here before, y'all know how much I hate the heat. Living in a desert in the summer is fucking miserable, and I run my air conditioner constantly to get away from it. When we moved into this house in 2020, our highest power bill in the summer was $90. This year, it was double that, and I ran the air less to save money. Believe me when I say I understand the stress. Fort Wayne, Indiana is located in the Midwest. You guys remember Indiana? That one was a wild ride. On June 20th, 2021, police responded to a home in the 1800 block of Eileen Street after getting a hang-up call. When they arrived, they found a seriously injured woman who'd been shot multiple times in the abdomen. She was somehow still alive. The victim, Shelby Von Holt, managed to tell the police that her attacker's name was Valerie before she succumbed to her injuries. This woman, Holy shit, she was a fighter. She had to undergo four abdominal surgeries and 20 blood transfusions during the two days she was fighting for her life. According to her father, Shelby had been so severely injured that the surgeons were unable to close her wounds up. They would have had to amputate her legs. When Shelby died, she still had four 9mm bullets inside her body. Thanks to Shelby's own words and footage from her ring doorbell camera, police were able to track down the shooter. The woman, later identified as Valerie Hardick, had been out terrorizing other people. While at a convenience store in Wilshire, witnesses reported seeing Hardick standing at the gas pumps for over an hour trying to read credit card information from the other customers. She also pointed a gun at a random man. When police arrived, they found her wandering around the parking lot near her car. When she was arrested, she had a 9mm handgun on her. If you Google this woman, holy shit, you can see the mental illness from a mile away. She's got them dead eyes. Sergei Babarin was executed by the SWAT team's gunfire on April 15, 1999. This schizophrenic Russian toolmaker made the mistake of firing at an officer, who was grazed but not seriously injured. They opened fire on him from outside, and he went down. The system failed this man. Yes, there was a language barrier. But he had managed to communicate well enough to get on medication. His family should have helped him, but instead, he met his maker after killing two innocent people, injuring a handful of others, and scaring the ever-loving fuck out of a bunch of fourth graders who were on a field trip to the library. Valerie Rose Hardick pled guilty, but mentally ill, to the murder of Shelby Von Holt. Her explanation for the murder was that Shelby had been seeing someone Hardick was close to. That's a very vague, very shitty reason to shoot somebody multiple times and then threaten people at a gas station, but okay. 
The judge credited her with 370 days, which would knock off about a year of the 65-year sentence she was handed. I have to give credit where it's due. While Hardick wasn't shot to death by the cops, she was given the maximum sentence allowed for this kind of murder in Indiana. The judge could see through her bullshit. I'm glad someone did. Hardick's claims of mental illness and abuse as a child weren't enough to get her out of a well-deserved punishment. She'll be in her late 80s when she's released, if she lives that long. I'm really glad we don't have another Melissa Turner situation here. Go listen to that old episode if you want to get angry. I saved the worst case for last. If you've made it this far, you deserve a really fucked up story. This one hits all the nerves, including the glaring double standard we have in this country. This is another one of those cases that I am very surprised I hadn't heard about until now. I haven't done an 80s serial killer in what feels like forever. This one ended in 1980. Does that still count? Fuck it, I'm gonna talk about it anyway, because this one pissed me off almost as bad as the Maryland episode. Gerald Gallego was born in Sacramento, California in the summer of 1946. His mother was a prostitute, and his father... Well, I could wait until we get to Mississippi to tell you about him, but I don't want to make you wait. He was a career criminal who ended up being the first person to be put to death in Mississippi's gas chamber. Talk about full fucking circle on this one. Gerald was abused by his mother, as well as the many boyfriends she brought into the house. Several of these men also sexually abused the boy. Gerald was not given much in the way of affection. He was severely neglected, often hungry and dirty, and literally begged his mother to hug him. Violence breeds violence, yeah, you've heard it a million times before. Gerald caught his first felony charge when he was just 10 years old. He robbed his neighbor's house. This began a life of crime that puts a lot of the greats to shame. Before he went on to become the sick son of a bitch he was later in life, he was arrested 23 times and had done quite a bit of time in prison. Gerald was a truck driver and worked as a bartender at one point as well. He was married a grand total of seven times, including two separate marriages to the same woman. Goddamn. This man clearly did not think of anyone but himself. He would often abandon his wives as soon as they ran out of money. Someone should have gotten him help when he was a kid. The state likes to swoop in and steal kids from their parents over the smallest things, but back in the 50s, they apparently couldn't be bothered to help kids in actual danger. Gerald was fucked up. At the age of 12, he molested a six-year-old girl and was placed into a youth authority facility in California. Pedophiles don't change. The only cure is a bullet. As an adult, Gerald also molested his own daughter, as well as one of her friends. So far, we've hit on a few unsavory topics. Pedophilia, incest, child abuse and neglect. But let's throw some bigamy in there for a little Utah-esque spice. Charlene Williams was born on October 10, 1956, in Stockton, California. Unlike her future husband, she was born into a normal, supportive family. Her father was the vice president of a supermarket chain and often traveled with Charlene's mother. After a tragic car accident that left her mother severely injured, Charlene took over a lot of her mother's duties and started going on business trips with her dad. Clients of her father often commented on how articulate she was for her age. Things would change, though. I was a smart kid, considered gifted by a lot of people. I had the whole world ahead of me. I even met the fucking governor once as a kid. But I had parents who just didn't care. That tends to fuck people up, in case you haven't noticed. Charlene started drinking and doing drugs as a young adult. She was also very flirty with her male co-workers, which led to her developing a reputation as an infomaniac. I really fucking hate it when I can identify with the sick bastards in this podcast. Thankfully, I have enough sense not to get sucked into the mess that Charlene did. Trying to make the best of her life, Charlene married a man who was addicted to heroin. 
This man later claimed that Charlene was obsessed with lesbian sex and that she tried to get him to hire a prostitute for a threesome. And just like that, I'm back to not identifying with this psycho bitch. That didn't take long. As you probably guessed, their marriage fell apart. Charlene's parents had interfered with the relationship. Can't say I blame them. That sounds like a disaster. The young woman went on to marry a soldier, who she described as a mother's boy. She got bored of him, and they divorced. Charlene got involved with a married man, but he ended things immediately after she asked if they could have sex with his wife. Rather than just, I don't know, date women? Charlene attempted suicide, and survived. I know it was a different time, but if this episode has taught me anything, it's that women can do whatever the fuck they want and have no consequences. She could have been as gay as she wanted. In September of 1977, Gerald would cross paths with Charlene at a poker club in Sacramento. They were living together within a week. This relationship was strange by most people's standards, but not everyone has a stick up their ass. Charlene was the submissive one in their sadomasochistic relationship. She later claimed in court that she hated the pain Gerald caused her. He was apparently really into rough sex and sodomy. But one partner wasn't enough for this deviant man. He brought home a 16-year-old girl after the couple had lived together for a few months. If you thought that Charlene finally got what she wanted, you'd be wrong. Yeah, they all had sex, but Gerald wouldn't allow the women to touch each other. After he returned from work the next day, he caught Charlene in bed with the girl and absolutely lost his shit. He threw the young girl out a window and beat Charlene. This was followed by a refusal to have intercourse with her. He claimed to have lost his libido and that he'd become impotent. I don't believe him for a second, and neither did Charlene. She assumed he'd been sleeping with bar patrons when he worked as a bartender. After about a year, Gerald admitted to her that he needed a pair of sex slaves to keep him excited. Who doesn't? What the fuck? <laughs> he asked Charlene to find them for him, and she complied. Probably because she also wanted slaves. Sandra K. Butler was just 16 when she disappeared while on her way to the Green Bray Shopping Center in Sparks, Nevada. This was 1978, so you bet she was classified as a runaway. Pretty sure back then a witness could watch you get dragged into a van and the cops would still say you ran away. What a mess. It is believed that the Gallegos were responsible for Sandra's disappearance. That day, Sandra had been given permission to ride her bike to the Reno Rodeo. Gerald and Charlene were proven to have been there on that day. While Sandra's body was never found, and neither Gerald nor Charlene ever confessed to involvement, foul play is suspected. What happened to Sandra being a runaway? The 70s was a gross decade. I say that a lot, but I'm right. In early September of 1978, Charlene tricked 16-year-old Kippy Vaught and 17-year-old Rhonda Scheffler into getting into the couple's van. The girls had been shopping at a Sacramento mall when the Gallegos kidnapped them. Gerald restrained them after threatening them with a gun. Both girls were repeatedly assaulted by him throughout the night. The next day, the couple drove out to a field with the girls. Gerald hit Kippy with a tire iron before beating Rhonda with it. He then took out his 25 caliber pistol and shot them both in the head one time. Kippy survived this gunshot as the bullet had only grazed her skull. She tried to escape as Gerald was leaving the scene, but he came back to finish her off with three more shots to the head. Charlene would go on to tell a cellmate that she felt ecstatic during this crime. I fucking hate this bitch for real. Almost exactly one year after Sandra Butler disappeared, Gerald and Charlene would kidnap another pair of girls from a fair in Nevada. The couple lured them into the van by promising to pay them if they helped distribute flyers. Charlene drove along Interstate 80, which I am very familiar with, and wound up northeast of Reno in a remote area. She watched in the rearview mirror as Gerald repeatedly raped both girls. Once they arrived out in the wilderness, Gerald took a break and watched Charlene as she forced the girls to perform sex acts on each other. I would strap both of these sick motherfuckers into an electric chair. 
with synthetic sponges. God damn. Hours later, 13-year-old Sandra Colley was dragged toward a dry stream bed and hit in the head with a shovel. Charlene recalled that it sounded like a loud splat, like a flat rock hitting mud. Sandra then fell to her knees and slowly down onto her face. After this, 14-year-old Brenda Judd was killed the same way. Gerald dug a large pit and placed both girls into it before covering it with a rock. These girls were listed as runaways, of course. Charlene later confessed to the murders, but their bodies weren't found until 1999. On the morning of April 24, 1980, Gerald woke Charlene up with a simple demand. I want a girl. Get up. The couple drove around for a while before noticing a pair of 17-year-old girls, Stacy Ann Redekin and Karen Chipman Twiggs, coming out of a bookstore. Charlene talked them into traveling with her in the van after offering to smoke weed with them. Girls were more than happy to partake in the devil's lettuce with this strange woman. What a fucking time to be alive. When they got back to the van, Gerald was waiting with a 357 Magnum pistol. He told Charlene to drive and force the girls to undress. This was followed by several hours of sexual assaults. Charlene was told to drive out to a secluded area, much like she'd done before. Gerald took the girls out into the woods one at a time. He carried a shovel and a hammer with him. Unlike the other murders, he made Charlene look at the graves. She claimed that she saw movement, but Gerald insisted the girls were dead, so they left. Three months later, some picnickers would find the bodies, which had been ravaged by animals. Both girls had signs of sexual assault, and it was determined that blunt force injuries to the head had been what killed them. Hitchhiking used to be a thing. Now we just order strangers with cars on the internet to come pick us up. But back in the 70s, a thumb sticking out was the equivalent of the Uber app. Linda Teresa Aguilar was just 21 when she got into the wrong car. She had accepted a ride from the Gallegos, but realized that she was in danger when Gerald pulled a gun on her. The woman was four months pregnant at the time. Two weeks after her disappearance, her family reported her missing. Her body was discovered on June 22, 1980, by some German tourists. Linda's wrists and ankles had been bound with nylon cord, and her skull was broken. But that's not what killed her. Linda had been buried alive. Sand was found in her nose, mouth, and throat. About a month after Linda was found, a 31-year-old bartender named Virginia Moschel was abducted from her bar's parking lot. Gerald and Charlene knew Virginia pretty well, as she'd served them drinks pretty frequently. This poor woman had to feel an added sense of dread knowing that it was people she knew that were doing this to her. Gerald sexually assaulted her and forced her to beg for her life before strangling her to death. She was left near a pond. Three months later, her skeletal remains were found, with fishing line still binding her and a cord still around her neck. After leaving a frat party on November 1st, 1980, 22-year-old Craig Miller and his 21-year-old fiance, Mary Elizabeth Sowers, were kidnapped by Gerald and Charlene. This time, no effort was made to lure them into the van. Gerald got out and approached the couple with a gun in his hand. They were driven out to a remote location, and Craig was ordered out of the car. When he turned to walk toward the front of the car, Gerald shot him in the back of the head while Mary Elizabeth watched. He then fired two more shots into the man's head to ensure that he had perished. His body would later be found close to Bass Lake, California. Charlene was ordered to drive back to their apartment, where Gerald would rape Mary for several hours. When he was finished, he made Charlene drive back out into a rural area. Mary was ordered out of the car and shot three times. This last murder was different from all the others. A friend of Craig and Mary had witnessed their abduction. The friend reported the car's license plate number to the police, who tracked the Gallegos down and found them at a Western Union office. Charlene's parents were in the process of sending her money. Both Gerald and Charlene were charged with kidnapping and murder, and both pled not guilty.
Gerald Armand Gallego was found guilty and sentenced to death in both California and Nevada. In 1997, the Nevada death sentence was overturned. Keep in mind, though, this is California. Back then, they were actually executing people. But Gerald died of cancer in 2002 while waiting for the state to put him down. There is no information on his last words or last meal, unfortunately. Charlene Adele Gallego took a fucking plea deal and walked away with a sentence of 16 years and 8 months. This is after confessing to all the horrible shit she'd put those girls through. She helped her husband kidnap, sexually abuse, and murder 11 people. By today's standards, her driving out into the wilderness would make her just as guilty as the man who hit them in the head with shovels. I don't know what the fuck the prosecution was thinking letting her take that deal. But maybe they cared more about getting their win and keeping Gerald off the streets than they did about punishing this woman for her role in the crimes. Charlene served her sentence and was released in July of 1997. She spent her time in prison studying business, psychology, and Icelandic literature. During a later interview, Charlene said that she was also a victim of Gerald. There were victims who died and there were victims who lived. It's taken me a hell of a long time to realize that I'm one of the ones who lived. No, Charlene, you're not a victim. You got into a relationship with this psycho. You stayed with him, even when he wouldn't have sex with you anymore. You helped him carry out his sick fantasies because you loved him and wanted to make him happy. You aren't a victim. You're just as big of a piece of shit as he is, and it's a shame California didn't put you down when they had the chance. The last update I can find is from 2013. Charlene lives in the Sacramento area, free to wander the streets and enjoy life, unlike the girls she helped her husband kidnap. You probably thought this episode was going to be about race, but it's not. It's about women walking away with their lives while men die for the same crimes. There is a double standard in how this country applies the death penalty, and while most people choose to ignore it, I won't. Women get away with so much shit simply because they're women. It's disgusting. If I were to snap and kill my family, I'd be labeled mentally ill and stressed. If my husband did the same, he'd be labeled a monster. Female teachers who prey on their students are often met with comments like, where was she when I was a kid? But if a male teacher does it, he's a creep and a pedophile. We as a society let women get away with so much, sometimes even murder. Having a ham sandwich in your pants doesn't magically make you exempt from the rules. We need to apply punishments equally. Women should hang for the same crimes as their male counterparts. We've spent decades, hell, probably centuries, fighting for equality. Well, now we have it, in every way except this one in the draft. If you want equal benefits, you should expect equal consequences for your equally shitty actions. I am of the belief that modern feminism is a cancer on society. Women today have a meltdown because some states won't let them kill their third trimester babies. Men expect them to actually bring something to a relationship and won't marry them unless they do. They whine and cry about the societal pressures to have families instead of selling their bodies on the internet for easy money. It's fucking disgusting. I work full-time, plus overtime sometimes, and I still do my best to take care of my husband and my kids. It's hard, don't get me wrong, but I still can't understand why women in today's time act the way they do. I want you to take a good hard look at the world we live in. Men commit suicide more than women. Men are sentenced to death more than women. Men have more dangerous jobs, can be drafted into the military, and are forced to be in active combat roles. Men break their fucking backs to provide for their families. Good men, anyway. And their wives bitch and complain on the internet that life is too hard because they're expected to raise their kids and take care of their husbands. If you're one of these women, I suggest you shut the fuck up and get back in the kitchen. You have it a hell of a lot easier than you care to admit. This episode was a long one, 
but it was important. And I got to show you my anger toward people with ham sandwiches in their pants. If you enjoyed this episode, share it on your internet and give me some likes and shit. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. Expect a lot of backlash after this one. My exclusive video content can be found on Rumble. I'll be back next week with a shorter episode, hopefully, about another state I won't set foot in. It's probably going to piss me off like Maryland. I'm going to close this one out with a quote from one of the greats, a man I know of because of my grandpa, who brought laughs to many before he died, the great George Carlin. His words sum up this gargantuan episode better than anything I have to say ever could. Men are from Earth. Women are from Earth. Deal with it. See you next time.